Well, if you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 32. It will be there this morning, and I'll, I'll add my welcome. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and we've been looking at a series called The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and looking at the Genesis account of these three patriarchs. And we are in the Jacob story, and this is about right in the middle of, of uh, Jacob's life and, and Jacob's story, one of the most fascinating stories, actually, in all of Genesis, maybe in all of the Bible. And uh, to kind of give us a visual of what's going on, I, I remember I, I, the elementary school I went to was Jackson Elementary in Abilene, Texas. And... Um, uh, we were the uh, buffaloes, is what we were. And, and back then, a uh, long time ago back then, you still played sports in, um, uh, in, in elementary school, fifth, fifth and sixth grade. And so that's, that's what it was. But, but before fifth and sixth grade, we would have the sort of, uh, oh, you could call them intramural, but it was, you'd have these free recess times and, and your whole grade would be out there. And one of the things that inevitably happened is everyone would land around the pull-up bars. We had this series of pull-up bars over there. And the, the contest was who could hang from the bar the longest. And I know that seems ridiculous, and I don't know why this time and this place and this group of kids in the world thought this was the ultimate test of everything, but it was. And what you did is you wanted to, you know, hang from the bar as long as you could. You wanted to be the last person hanging. And so people would have us, you know, they do forehand or some would do backhand or some would, you know, do this with their hands. And um, it, so, you know, because the strategy, you know, whatever your strategy was, and you, your, your feet couldn't touch the, the side you know, you had, you had the, the, the pull-up bar police there making sure that, that you weren't cheating in any way. And, and I'll tell you, so for, you know, all, I never won, by the way. Um, I have a body that sort of betrays um, th that whole activity. Uh, there were other things I was good. Kickball, I was good at. That, not, not so much. Um, but we, Kristen Berry, this, she won every time. Um, you know, part of it was, I think she weighed 48 pounds in the, in the fourth grade or whatever, and, uh, and she could just hang, she could hang, she'd still be hanging there right now if she wanted to be. But man, I used to dream. So something was just set in my heart. I wanted to be, just wanted to hang on, just keep hanging and be able to hang there. And you get towards the end and you you know you're not going to make it. You know that, you know, you know, your time is, you're numbered in seconds now. But, but you hang even on to, to, to your fingertips to the last second. See, I think reality is you come in here this morning, if you're like most people, and I'm like most people. And you find that you're hanging on like that to things in your life. Hanging on in your own strength. Hanging on to the way you do things. Or hanging on to your own 
plans or your own dreams. Just hanging on for all your might. See, here's the big idea of this whole story in Genesis chapter 32. Is that God is going to go to battle with Jacob to accomplish his will in Jacob's life. God's going to show up to Jacob and go, Jacob, I'm going to go to battle with you because what I want for your life is greater than you could ever imagine for your life, and I want it so much for your life, I'm going to go to battle with you. I'm going to go to battle against you for my will in your life. And the thing is, God is still doing that. That God has a will for your life, a desire for you. I mean, you were created in his image, and from before the foundations of time, he knew you were, knew your name, and knew all your days, and he has a will and a desire for you, and God is going to go to battle for his will in your life. And sometimes he ends up going to battle against you. And all the while, we, they're just hanging on as, as hard as we can. Truth is, what Jacob's going to have to learn is that while it's Jacob's life, it's God's story. That's what God wants. So, five things I want to look at in this uh, chapter, this chapter 32. We'll get through the first three of them pretty quick, and then we'll, we'll linger on four and five. But five things about how God works in Jacob's life, and I think how he works in our life. The first one is God's strategy for your life is to take us through hard things. And I know when I say that first off, some of you are like, I'm out. That's the whole reason I'm here. I'm trying to get away from hard things. But that's not, it's not life. In fact, God takes us right through the middle of hard things. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. It says, when Jacob... Or Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Now, i got to stop right there and, and give you just a couple of little background things, because we, we didn't look at chapter 31 last week. Uh, we, we skipped chapter 31. But the story is still Jacob and Laban up there. Laban's his uncle, and he's, he's been sent to Laban because he's on the run from Esau, his brother. But he goes up to Laban, he ends up following, falling in love with, with uh, Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel. He ends up serving seven years for her. At the end of that seven years, he ends up marrying the wrong sister because Laban tricked him. So he marries Leah, makes a deal for Rachel, ends up married to both sisters, serves Laban for 14 years, and, and he survives that deal. At the end of it, he's going to come out blessed by God and God's going to come to him and say, hey, it's time for you to leave. I want you to return to the land I promised you. I'm going to be with you. And, and so what happens is, at the end of chapter 31, he and Laban, they make this, this sort of covenant of peace with each other. And Laban does it to his God, and Jacob does it to, to, to God, the, the God he's met and has known all this life. But, but the thing says, Laban says, look, I won't go south of here, but you're not to come north of here. 
And what that does essentially is that cuts Jacob off from ever going back. He has only one direction to go now in his life, and that is south. That's back to the land he came from. That's back to the land of promise. But when he does that, this no going back, the only way forward is straight into Esau, the brother he has been on the run from for 14 years. Well, Esau hated Jacob. In Esau's mind, Jacob had stolen everything that was rightfully his. He had robbed him of the life he had always dreamed of, and Esau was there looming, and Esau was out to kill him. And Jacob had the understanding that if I head back and I head into Esau, Esau's going to take my life. But God's strategy in our life is to take us right through some of those hard things. Second thing I want you to see is God wants to show us his strength. Look at verse 2, we'll pick up. And so he went on his way. The angels of God met him in verse 2. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. You might have a footnote there that that word that Jacob called the place, Mahanaim, um, the, the footnote in your Bible might say two camps. That Literally, that's what that word means. It's, it's two camps. It could be translated this way, that he, he sees the, the angels of God, he stops there, this is God's camp, he names it two camps. You know, I've met with God's hosts His armies are here. This is where his might and his power are. I've seen all the strength of God. That could be what it is he's saying. It's funny because the reality is Jacob's going to show up with all of his own strength. What he could mean is I showed up with my power and my own riches and my own Servants. So the idea of this two camps is I landed here with all my stuff and all my strength. I, I set up camp, but it turns out God Himself, He's already set up camp here in all of His strength. And so there's two camps. The truth is, that's the story of Jacob's life. He's always been pursuing what God meant for him to have, but, he, but he's been doing it his own way. He's been doing it in his own strength. Through all the chapters of Jacob's life, God's been saying to Jacob, Jacob, it's, it's, it's my story, and I've made you promises, and I've been faithful to you, and I have steadfast love for you, and I will accomplish what I said, what I promised. It will be accomplished. Yet over and over again, Jacob, over and over again. You can insert your name if you want. Ross, you've manipulated, you've told lies, you've done this your own way, all the ways that you've chosen to operate. The reality is you've been fighting against me. You've been fighting against me for everything I've wanted to do in your life. 
Well, by the end of the chapter, what you see is the battle is really waged and, and God's going to have won the battle. Well, what happens in the next couple of verses is Jacob's fears are realized. A messenger um, shows up. He goes to try to win Esau's favor. Um, Jacob then hears a report back from the, the messenger, and he's, he's absolutely terrified. It can't be good for Jacob. Uh, Esau, 400 men, 400 warriors. And, and General Esau, for all Jacob knows, is the angry brother that wants revenge. So what Jacob does is he decides, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to divide my camp. So there's this wordplay all, all through this chapter. It's great. He's going to divide his camp. And he divides his stuff up this way. Half of it, because if Esau conquers one half, he'll still have the other half. This is what he's thinking. But it's pathetic because what he does is he puts all the things he loves in one camp. And all the things he doesn't really care about in the other camp. You think, well, that seems smart. Well, it wouldn't, except when you're splitting up your wives and your children. Oh, oh yeah, and, by the, and Jacob puts himself at the back. There's enough fear and terror in Jacob to cause him to do something he has never done before up to this point. I told you this is the middle of Jacob's story. It started several chapters back. And he's heard about God from his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. In fact, when God announces himself to Moses, he says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and yet Jacob's here in the middle of his story, in the middle of his life. He's made one error after the other, but he's so terrified here in Genesis chapter 32, that he does something he has never done up to this point in his life. In verse 9, he is going to turn to God in prayer. Look at what he says, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. That's how he starts his prayer. We're going to finish the prayer here in a second, but, but I want you to see it, it ends up being, actually, it's the longest prayer recorded in Genesis. And he starts by saying, God, I know who you are. You're the God of my grandfather. You're the God of my father. You're the one who spoke to me. I'm, and, and what he said, he said, I, I know who you are. He's, he's saying, he, he begins his prayer by who God is and rehearsing what, what it was God said. It's who you are. And this is what you said. And that's how he's praying. He's appealing to who God is and what God Sometimes we go to prayer. Um, it's easy to find ourselves. We just jump into prayer right in the middle of our own list, you know, right in the middle of our anxieties uh, that, that always kind of dictates our prayers, the cares of the day, the cares of the moment. Um, sometimes we jump right into prayer without even a thought about who God is, this God we're praying to. 
One guy described the, the way that we pray sometimes is that we treat God like a pinata, and we have a stick, and we beat him with our prayer, hoping something good falls out. It's not what Jacob does. It, it remarkably starts out incredibly well. I mean, for a guy who's appears never prayed before, he talks to God. He begins by talking to God about who he is. I, I love, I love to pray with our elders. We get together for elder meetings, and I listen. I'm. I want to get to the agenda. I want to be efficient, partly because I want to go home. You know, I want God to bless what we're doing. But we always start, and we, and we start to pray, and one of our wise and godly elders describes all of them. Just, they'll just let the silence hang in the air for a minute. And usually say something like, God, you're good, and you're sovereign, and you're steadfast. Sometimes it, read, read a psalm or something, you know, the psalmist cries out to you and speaks to you of your attributes. In fact, you heard Don as he prayed this morning. That's where he started. God, this is who you are. Now the elder comes after him, starts praising God for his attributes, how powerful he is, mighty he is, intimate. It's not long before we praying and remembering and talking to God about his son and the sacrifice and all that Jesus has accomplished for him. And we spend 30, 45 minutes Sometimes an hour in prayer before we even get to the agenda. But you know what? A anxiety decreases. Clarity increases. C clarity and discernment so often for us comes in the midst of just praying to God and declaring and proclaiming who He is, reminding ourselves of who God is. How you know who He is is you know who He is through His Word. You know, you, you can read God's Word. You, you can do it this afternoon. Tonight before you go to bed, you could just open the Psalms. You could read it and read a few lines and stop and turn those lines back into a prayer to God. You, you said this, God, this is, this is who you are. It's what Jacob's doing. I, I, I'm worried about us. I know you're worried about us. You, you're worried too. You have the same worries I do. You know, we text, we Twitter, we Facebook, we text some more, and we do all this stuff. We, we want instant, instant, instant. We, we want our needs met now, now, now. And, and I, I'm worried. I, you're worried too. I know you are. I think we're not a people of, of prayer much anymore. We're not a people of prayer. Just stop and linger for a minute and talk to God about who he is because of who he's said he is. But I think, listen, some of you 
may be here this morning because you need clarity about something. I think it's a great place to start. Stop and bow before God and talk to Him about who He is. There's clarity there. I know it in my own life. I know it from looking at the text. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, I'm not worthy. Jacob goes on. I'm not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love, love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. Now... I've become two camps. I, I started this job. I crossed the Jordan the first time. I didn't have, I had only my staff. I come back. I got enough stuff for two camps now. And I'm not worthy of any of that. And it's this great reminder. When you begin to pray to who God is, you're left very quickly with the realization of who you are. And who you are, by the way, just spoiled the punchline for you, you're not worthy. I have nothing. Now I have all of this. And all of this isn't just stuff. We're people with stuff. We are, certainly. Most of us have two camps worth of stuff. You know, in our house and the other camps in our garage. And our attic. Here's the danger. We, we, we bought into the story, the, the competing story, the one that says, you know, good job, you. Good job. You did this. Good job. It's because of your education and your background and your hard work and who your family is and what your experience is. You did this. Good for you. We, we, we know that's not satisfying. Craig Barnes in this great book he wrote called um, Hustling God. This is, he wrote it about the story of Jacob's great line. Hustling God. He says this, the self-help market has made a great deal of money off of our fear that we are stuck with ourselves. We keep thinking if we just find the right formula, we'll at least be happy. So we try the latest fads in health or assertiveness or in becoming more effective managers of time and family and success. But the self-help self -help concept is not really offering help. What these, what these authors are actually peddling is the possibility of change so that you can become the person of your dreams. He goes on, sometimes people come to church hoping that God will do for them what all of the books, seminars, and exercise have failed to do. To change them. He says, in our church, we don't talk much about change. We prefer to speak of conversion. God does not convert you by modifying your behavior through a lot of religious activity. Rather, conversion begins with opening your heart to believe the voice from heaven that is calling you beloved. The reason we have so much difficulty believing that we are the beloved of God is that we know too much about ourselves. 
We're fully aware of what we have done and left undone. And we have great difficulty loving ourselves as a result, so how can God love us? What the Bible's rather clear about this, God doesn't love us because we deserve to be loved. The love comes only by the mystery of forgiving grace. And grace is better than getting the job you always wanted. Having Ed McMahon show up at your door with a million dollars. And getting married all on the same day. It's better. Grace is better than the fulfillment of your dreams. Grace is the fulfillment of God's dreams. Grace is your forgiveness. And grace is God's determination to give us what we need, not what we deserve. This grace. So we spend so much time in our life chasing after our own dreams. God's willing to go to battle with us over his dreams, over his design, over his will in our life. Well, Jacob gets to the request. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says this, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. Deliver me. I'm afraid. That's the request. If you underline things in your Bible, you could underline the word deliver me. He's going to be delivered later in this passage. It is not going to be in any way that he expects to be. Let's summarize. It's a pretty good prayer. Jacob leaves something out of the prayer. But, but, the, but he starts by proclaiming who God is. And, and he understands who he is. And, and he, he talks to God about what God has said. He, he's praying his word back to him. Makes the request for deliverance. Here's what he doesn't do. He never seeks God about his will. God, deliver me. And I pray your will would be, would you lead me into that deliverance? Would you show that to me? Would you help me to follow you in that deliverance? Instead of seeking God about his will, what he does is he gets up from his prayer and he begins to try to answer the prayer himself. You ever prayed to God and then walked away and tried to answer your own prayer? Of course you have. Then I don't mean we should pray and do nothing. But when we pray, we, we want to walk in faith. Faith that we trust God more than we trust ourselves. And that's Jacob's problem. Remember, it's a place of two camps. Jacob's going to trust in his camp 
rather than trusting in God's camp. And so what he does, the next few verses, he gets up from the prayer and he begins to work his own plan. He gets all his stuff organized, gets it ready to present to Esau. Verse 16, he tells us drove after drove of stuff. At the end of verse 20, uh, he, he, you know, he says, perhaps Esau will accept me now. The man who is desperate in prayer is not walking in faith. He is still depending on his own strength and his own ways. And this is where the battle's going to come. Look at verse 30, or look at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them, sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip, hip was put out a joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. He's a restless man. He's all alone. And then one of the craziest scenes in all the Bible takes place. A man wrestles with him to the breaking of the day. And in the text, he's, it, the text is real ambiguous here. You know, it's full of mystery here. If you've never read it before, you begin wondering, well, who is this guy? Is this Esau? Did Esau sneak over and into the camp and, and try to take care of this deal on his own? Maybe it's one of Esau's mighty men. But that's the point of the text. You, you don't know who it is. But you know they wrestle all night long. I have a brother. He's 10 years younger than me. We don't do it anymore. We used to. We used to, I mean, up until just a few years ago, like every time we get together Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, he's got little brother syndrome, you know. He like wants to wrestle. It was really fun when we were younger. It does not last very long as an old man, actually. You know, two, three minutes tops, and we're heaving. She can't catch our breath. They wrestled all night long. That's what God will do. See, find out later... It's God himself. He's wrestling with Jacob. Let me ask you are, you, are you wrestling with God? Jacob, he goes to bed that night. Esau's on his mind. 
He thinks he's going to wake up and be in conflict with Esau. He, he thinks that's the real conflict, the real test, the real challenge. That's Esau. What he didn't know is God's saying to him, you, you, you're not wrestling, you're wrestling with me. Jacob thought he was in conflict with Laban and conflict with Esau. God's saying, your life is a competition with what I'm trying to do with you. And God in his graciousness comes and wrestles him all night long. It's how much God loves you. He's willing to wrestle you for his will in your life. Verse 25, when he did not prevail, he, he plays dirty. It's like when I wrestle with my kids, used to. I, I'm, I was, I'm stronger than my kids, I still am. And if I wasn't careful when they were little, I would have hurt them. And it, I wouldn't have meant to, but I got to be careful. You know, you temper your strength and... My daughters, you know, they would wrestle. We'd just end up, you know, hugs and kisses. My son, when we wrestled, he wanted to show me how strong he was. And when I'd get tired, I just sat on him. <laughs> Are we done yet? Point is, I didn't wrestle my kids with all my strength. Neither did God. Then God, what he does is he touches his hip socket. It's like this reminder, I could have destroyed you if I wanted to, but I didn't. I did weaken you. And I did this so you are so dependent upon me. See, you, you've lived your life dependent upon your own strength, upon your own way, upon your own wits, upon your own will. This is a great gift I'm giving you, Jacob. You are going to limp for the rest of your life. That doesn't sound like a gift. But that's exactly what it is. In fact, that's what the text says. If you look at verse 26, yeah, I won't let you go, Jacob says, until you bless me. That's called faith. You can write that out of your margin on, in verse 26. He's clinging to God. I, I, I won't let you go. That, that's what faith looks like. And then God says to Jacob, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. Do you remember what his name means? You, do you know what now he has to say to the God of the universe? What's your name? Deceiver, manipulator, I'm a cheat, let me ask you, have you come to that place in your life where you've admitted to God, confessed to him who you are? Have you come into the place in your life where you cling to God and say, this is who I am. Do not let me go. That's what faith looks like. In this 
culture back then, if you named something, it means you were lord over it. You're the master. That's what, what God does. He renames him. You've been called Jacob. I'm changing your name to Israel. Israel literally means God strives. Could very likely mean what it means is God wins. God wins the fight. You think you've been fighting against all these other things, but battling all these things in your life, Jacob, guess what? You've been battling against me, and I win. Your name now is God wins. And he's, and he's going to be crippled in his natural strength there so that he can become strong in his faith. You remember, Jacob prayed for deliverance. Here, he is delivered. He was delivered by being wounded by God. And it's the greatest blessing God can give us, the constant reminder that we are dependent upon him. You might say, Jacob discovered the gift of being wounded by God's grace. Wounded just enough that you never forget how dependent you are upon Him. Grace. It's great news. God's going to go to battle against you for His will in all the places that you're living in your strength, pursuing your will, trying to write your own story. God loves you enough to go to battle with you. Maybe he's battling you right now. You're hanging on to those bars with all your might. Guess what? If you turned that around and you began to hang on to him, cling to him, that's called faith. About a thousand years later, Hosea, one of the prophets, he's gonna, he writes a little commentary on this passage. This is what he says in Hosea chapter 12. Listen to this. He says, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob. He's talking about the nation now. According to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel. In Hosea's mind, he's probably looking forward to Jesus. He strove with him and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Hosea's message is God loves you. It's who he is. And he's wrestled with you. He's wrestling you by faith. He wants you to wait, wait, wait. Cling to him. That's what he wants. 
Paul, he writes something similar in the New Testament in Corinthians. The, the church at Corinth, they're dogging Paul and saying, we have all these other teachers and they're better than you, Paul. This is kind of the fan mail he was getting from them. We don't like you anymore, Paul. That's kind of stuff. And Paul doesn't defend himself. He, he could have written back, no, they're not. I wrote a third of the New Testament. I mean, he could have said that. Here's what he said. It's interesting. Second Corinthians. He said, to keep from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. God was... God was revealing to me his word, and I was writing his word, and it was like, it was like nothing I've ever experienced, and the best I can tell, it's almost like nothing hardly anyone in the history of the world's ever experienced. It was an unbelievable grace that God was pouring out on me. This is what Paul's saying. And to keep me from being conceited about it? A thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from being conceived. He's saying, God's grace came with its own wounding so that I would never for one second think, oh, I did this on my own. No, God gave this to me so that I would constantly be dependent on him. I bleed with him three times that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My powers made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says to him, so, so because of that, I will boast more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Then I'm right in the center of God's will. When I'm dependent upon him, I'm right in the center of God's will. God offers you all his strength. Why do you still strive against him? Why do you wrestle him? What, why do you set up camp when his camp's already there? He, through this passage and through the pages of Scripture, God's inviting you to cling to Him, lean into Him. He's good, He's faithful, and His steadfast love endures forever ever. And like a father who calls to his child, He calls you to come to Him. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the story of Jacob. As you preserved Jacob's, the story of his life, you didn't sanitize it, you didn't gloss over it. Unashamedly, you say, I'm the God of Jacob. And then you tell us who he is. 
And I thank you for that because I see so much of myself in Jacob. And Father, I know that I have friends here and friends online that do too. And so I pray this morning you'd, you'd grab our attention enough that we would turn, we'd reach out, we'd call to you, cling to you. Father, we want your story for our life, not our story for our life. And so, I pray your, your grace, your violent grace, would overwhelm us. This I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.